0: listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It's about 25 years ago that the sociologist Rodney Stark published a book called The Rise of Christianity. It came with the subtitle How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. Now that rather wordy subtitle summarizes the matter that most fascinated Stark, namely how it was that a small religious movement begun in backwater Galilee and seemingly hammered to nothing when the empire crucified its leader, became in just three centuries, the religious faith of the emperor himself. Stark does his historical, statistical, and sociological homework for this book, though at the same time, He argues that he does not, quote, reduce the rise of Christianity to purely material or social factors because doctrine receives its due as an essential factor in the religion's success was what Christians believed. What did those ancient Christians believe that had such a missional impact? Well, primarily that each and every human life mattered, which they then lived out in concrete and significant ways. The Christians rescued unwanted babies, primarily baby girls, who'd been left out to die of exposure, and they raised those babies as their own Now, that was a common practice in much of the ancient world, that a baby girl was not as desired as a baby boy and so was simply left out to die, but not for the Christians. It not only increased the number of children in their community, but it also stood as a remarkably countercultural expression of their lived faith. Their treatment of the sick was exemplary. And in times of medical epidemics, when the moneyed and privileged Romans would flee from the cities to the countryside to escape sickness, the Christians stayed put to care for the sick and the dying. In the 360s, now this is actually after Christianity had become legal, after Constantine had become a Christian, in the 360s there was a pagan Roman emperor, Julian who spent a considerable amount of time and energy trying to restore the old Roman ways, the old Roman religion. He wrote of the Christian benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of their dead, noting that, quote, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. In a Roman society heavily shaped by a rigid class system, the Christians set aside class distinctions, with slave and free, landowner and merchant, affluent and poor, all sitting down around the same tables. In a world where women had little status or standing, the Christian movement made room for women treating them as full members of the body of Christ. There is, Rodney Stark writes, virtual consensus among historians of the early church, as well as biblical scholars, that women held positions of honor and authority within early Christianity. And these ancient Christians were prepared to die for this faith, this faith that was so revolutionizing social practice simply by believing that each life mattered. Each one had a contribution to make. Christians effectively promulgated a moral vision utterly incompatible with the casual cruelty of pagan customs, Stark writes, and then adds, Finally, what Christianity gave to its converts was nothing less than their humanity and wouldn't that have been compelling to be given your humanity in a world where life was cheap class barriers impenetrable as steel and the stories of the old gods all about how little human life actually mattered now hold all of that in view as a as a lengthy background as we begin to consider tonight's reading from the book of Acts, because in that reading there are, in fact, clear signs of that revolutionary new practice. The story opens. It's nighttime. Paul has had a vision. It's a dream of a man from Macedonia pleading for him to come and help them, to bring this new way and good news into a new region. Convinced that this this vision, this dream was very much of God, Paul set out in the company of Silas, Timothy, and quite probably Luke himself, because starting in this passage in Acts, the narration begins to be framed as we, we set out from Troas, eventually arriving in Philippi. Which Luke describes as a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. When the Sabbath day arrived, they sought out a place of prayer. Now, it isn't entirely clear what that place was. It's not clear that it was a synagogue, for instance, because all the text says is that we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. We sat down and spoke to the women who'd gathered there. Now there's the first notice of the breaking of old restrictions and conventions. Like Jesus before them, Paul and his companions had no time or patience for the standard common to both the Romans and the Jews that not only was contact between men and women in public spaces largely frowned upon, but women were considered something of a waste of time when it came to any teaching that the men might have to share. But no, there they are outside the gates by the river with Paul speaking to these women about Jesus. And among their group was a woman named Lydia, described simply as a worshiper of God. Her name wasn't Jewish. Her city of origin certainly wasn't Jewish. So it's pretty clear that Lydia is a Gentile seeker, not unlike the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius the centurion whose stories appear earlier in Acts. That's the second challenge to the old conventions, that she's a Gentile. Lydia is also described as a dealer in purple cloth, a merchant, and in that Roman world, merchants didn't have the status of the privileged and propertied old Roman aristocracy. They were what we might call the middle class. But that also gave them something of a questionable stature because unlike slaves, indentured servants, laborers, and craftspeople, merchants were not nearly so much under the thumb Of the aristocracy. They had some independence and freedom, and that was suspect in that world. But to Paul and his companions, that questionable social status was meaningless. Now, that's three challenges to old conventions. The Lord opened Lydia's heart, Luke tells us, and so, in short order, she and her household are baptized. After which, quote, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. She prevailed upon them, which means they accepted her invitation, which is the fourth and final breach in the established social conventions for men. Three Jews and one Jewish convert staying in the home of a Gentile woman who knows what that that might have looked like, but they didn't care because they're part of that obscure, marginal Jesus movement that was transforming the world, one broken social convention after another. So back to Rodney Stark's book for just a minute where he writes... Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues, that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. Moreover, the corollary that because God loves humanity, Christians may not please God unless they love one another was something entirely new. Perhaps even more revolutionary was the principle that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and tribe, that it must extend to all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in First Corinthians. Indeed, love and charity, Stark writes, must extend even beyond the Christian community. No final distinctions are to be made between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, rich and poor, young and old, flourishing and struggling, strong and weak, well and unwell. For all are made to sit down together at the table of Christ. That new radical and spirit-led vision is a good part of why Christianity had spread as far as the British Isles and India by the end of the second century, while still not a legal religion. Well, that claim that those distinctions on old walls have got to come down are meaningless now that all must be welcome and that all must be greeted with love and mercy, that remains a claim placed upon us as members of the body of Christ. All must be welcome to sit at Christ's table. And each and every life matters. We need to live that out in real and concrete ways, right here, right now, ever and always because as surely as the faith, the church revolutionized those first three centuries the spirit is always promising to do it again and again and again in the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit Amen You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast for more information on our church or Provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.